text for this morning's sermon, Matthew chapter 26, verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you hear the words, the shepherd, the good shepherd, what comes into your mind? What picture do you get in your mind? Perhaps a bucolic, a pastoral scene, a happy, well-cared-for flock with a loving shepherd guiding them, providing for them, leading them, protecting them. In our text, we don't see that picture. In our text, there's something very different. In our text, we have the picture of a shepherd who is struck and sheep that are scattered. Now, why would the Lord Jesus quote a text which is so violent and so sad? Why doesn't he just speak of positive things? How is it helpful for the disciples? How is it helpful for us to to hear about a wounded shepherd and scattered sheep? Well, what's happening in the context? You notice as we read the chapter that in the verses 26 to 30, the Lord Jesus celebrated the first Holy Supper In history, he took the Passover and he gave it a new, a fuller meaning. No longer is it only a celebration of the liberation of God's people from Egypt. But from now on, it is even more a celebration of the liberation of God's people from death and from the power of sin. Now, have you ever stopped to think How strange it is that the first Holy Supper happens before the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. In the Holy Supper, we remember what Jesus did on the cross. But when Jesus celebrated the supper with his disciples in this chapter, that was still in the future. So what we have here in the verses 26 through to 30... There's a kind of trailer. You know, when you go to the movies and they they play the trailers for the movies that are upcoming, they give you a little picture of what the movie will be like. And that's kind of what happened in verses 26 through to 30. It's a little picture of what the Holy Supper will be. But something has to happen first. And in our text, the Lord Jesus is explaining exactly what needs to happen in order for the Holy Supper, which they've just celebrated, to have real meaning. What has to happen? For the Holy Supper to have real meaning, to have significance, real blood must be poured out. 
the shepherd must be struck. And that's a, that's a really strong word. It can mean hit or, or smitten, if you remember the old King James language. It can mean beaten or struck down or wounded. It can even mean killed. Strong word. The shepherd must be struck. And what will the consequence be? The sheep will be scattered in every direction. That's what our text is saying. So where's the gospel? Where is the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ in our text? Or to understand that our text is in fact declaring good news, we need to understand that Jesus is quoting an ancient prophecy here. You remember how Matthew begins his gospel. He keeps saying, this happened to fulfill what was written. What was written? What was written? And now at the end of the gospel, it's still happening. The Lord Jesus and his temptations in Matthew chapter 4. It is written. It is written. It is written. And now, look at our text. Jesus says, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written. Matthew emphasizes the fulfillment of of the Holy Scriptures of the Old Testament. And what the Lord Jesus is quoting here is a prophecy, an ancient prophecy of Zechariah. And you'll need to flip back in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 13, because we're going to spend a little bit of time there at this point. Zechariah chapter 13. And we don't have time to go into all the context if you read this a little bit later after the church service, you, you'll notice that in the immediately preceding context, there's even mention of 30 pieces of silver. There's mention of, in chapter 13, verse 1, of a fountain being opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. These are prophecies which are pointing forward towards the coming of the Lord Jesus. Now look at the verse 7 through to 9 of Zechariah 13. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. And now, this is what the Lord Jesus is quoting. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And look at the end of this verse. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Now, Hebrew is hard to translate, and poetic Hebrew is harder to translate. This is Hebrew poetry. This can also be translated, I will turn my hand over or toward the little ones. And the word little ones here is the insignificant, the small ones, the, the unimportant ones. So what's happening in Zechariah 13 and in the context? Well, Zechariah is prophesying of God's anger because there are so many unfaithful shepherds, unfaithful pastors. They're mistreating the people of God. They're preaching lies to the people of God. They're exploiting the people. Look for a moment at chapter 10 
verse 2 and verse 3. See what's the situation here in God's people at this time. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the divinists see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. So God is angry with the unfaithful leaders, but he's also angry with his covenant people because a lot of them are following their wicked shepherds, their wicked leaders, their wicked pastors. And so the prophecy of Zechariah is a mixture of heavy words of judgment against the unfaithful people and their unfaithful leaders. And mixed in with those words of judgment, there are at the same time repeated promises that God will draw his people back to himself again. He will save a remnant. Well, how will he save that remnant? Well, that's, that's explained in chapter 13, verses 7 through to 9. What's, what, how is he going to do it? Well, he will first of all smite his shepherd with the sword. The sheep will be scattered. That's verse 7. And then what is going to happen? The sheep will be scattered. Then there will be a great purification and a great refining. Look at that in verse 8. Two-thirds will be cut off. One-third left alive. Verse 9, I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. And at the end of all of this judgment and this refining judgment of God, finally at the end there is a purified remnant of God's people who will call upon my name, says the Lord, and I will answer them. That's verse 9. I will say they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. So that's the prophecy. Now why is Jesus quoting this prophecy? Because this prophecy is about to be fulfilled. Look carefully at the language of verse 7. God instructs the sword to awake against whom? Against the man who stands next to me. God isn't talking here about the unfaithful shepherds. He is talking literally about a shepherd who is his companion. That's the meaning of the word. Who is his kinsman. The word here, which we have translated as a phrase, the man who stands next to me, that word means someone who is our equal, someone who is like us. Well, do you know, children, do you know any shepherd who can stand next to God, who is equal to God, who is related to God? This can only be someone divine. This can only be a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And God decrees that this shepherd, his shepherd, the supreme shepherd of the flock, must be struck, must be wounded, must be slain. And how will that happen? 
Will anyone stand by him? Will anyone stand and stay by his side to support him? No. Everyone will scatter. Everyone will flee. He will face the burning wrath of God against him alone. The burning wrath of God against sin he will face by himself. The sheep will run. Yes, those sheep whose sin is the very reason that God is pouring out his wrath, those sheep will run. And they'll leave him alone. But on the day that God pours out his wrath on his shepherd, this will begin a process of purification for the people of God. Many will be lost. Many will be destroyed. But look at the end of verse 7. I will turn my hand toward the little ones. I don't like to quote-unquote correct a translation because I'm just one little pastor and the translators are very, very wise men. But Hebrew prepositions are very, very broad in their possibilities of translation. And the reason, there's a reason why I'm translating this in a more positive way. Because these are the ones who throughout the Scripture, God looks upon in mercy. They're the, the insignificant ones. The word here, if you remember your history from Genesis, the book of Genesis, when Lot was fleeing from Sodom, and he says, can I please just go to that little town over there? It's just a little one, just a little insignificant one. What was the name of that town? Zoar. That's the same word as we have here at the end of verse 7. The little ones. It's, the word is Zoar. The insignificant. The small. The weak. The despised. They're going to be covered by God's hand. They're the ones that God loves to save. The remnant of the poorest, the most unworthy, the most insignificant. God will cover them with his hand. Well, let's go back to Matthew chapter 26 now. And now understand what the Lord Jesus is saying. Today, he says to his disciples, it begins. Today, God will begin the process of purifying for himself a redeemed people, a renewed people, a refined remnant. But to get there, the good shepherd has to give his life for the sheep. The Son of God, the supreme pastor of the flock, must be beaten, must be bruised, must be wounded, must be mistreated, must be tortured, must be killed. And so the glory of this sacrifice will be all his. There will be no one with him. No one can share this with him. All will flee from him. Even you, beloved disciples, will leave him in his hour of greatest need, of greatest anguish, of greatest suffering. That's going to happen. The process begins. But what does the Lord Jesus say right after our text? Did you see verse 32? We read it. He says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee, after I am raised up. And we need to learn two things here. First, the Lord Jesus is fully confident 
that he will have the victory over death and over sin. He will be raised up. He will come out of this victorious. You know something else we need to learn? Jesus has full confidence that God will turn his hand toward the little ones. The disciples will be scattered, yes. But Jesus has full confidence that he will gather them together again after his victory on the cross. Jesus knows that God will keep for himself a remnant. Jesus knows that from a group of 11 insignificant unlearned men, from an insignificant despised part of the country, from that group of no ones and nothings, God will build up a renewed covenant people, a church from every nation, tribe, people, and language, a multitude which no man can number. And in that group, in that church, of which we're allowed to be part, not many are wise, rich, famous. Most of us are types that the world passes by without as much as a glance. And yet God sets his love on us insignificant ones, on us the unworthy. You who confess the name of Jesus, you are part of this glorious work that Jesus is beginning here in our text. And today God is reminding you, I bought you with a price. It was not cheap. It came at a great cost for you, Gentile, to be included in the people of God. A great majority of the Jews were rejected and cut off for you to have life. My son had to die. God has bought your membership in the people of God with the highest price that anyone could pay in the universe the precious blood of the Son of God. There's no higher price. And that's how much God paid for you. Now think about this. Easter is coming up. And at Easter we reflect on the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ in our place. Now, we're going through a time of affliction. We're going through a time of suffering. But it's pretty comfortable suffering, isn't it? We have high-speed internet. We have comfortable, climate-controlled homes. We have the miracle of modern technology. What we call suffering, and it is suffering. The great scheme of things in this history of this fallen world perhaps should be labeled more appropriately inconvenience. We have a fear of death. 
but it's remote. Very, very small remote possibility. And yet, even though it's just a little bit, this little taste is horrible, isn't it? We don't like it. It's unpleasant. We hate it. And then, as Easter approaches, we reflect on the infinite suffering of our Savior. If the little, little tiny bit that we're dealing with is so disagreeable, so painful, so horrible, then how much more his infinite suffering for us? He didn't have to suffer. He chose to suffer. He chose to suffer because he loves you. And think about the the loneliness and the separation that this social distancing and physical distancing and self-isolation and all those other fancy words and phrases are doing to us. Stinks. It's a pain. We hate it. We don't like it. But we still have contact, don't we? We have our family in our homes. We have video calls. We have modern communication. Grandpa and grandma can drive up into the driveway and we can wave at them through the windows of the car. We have modern communication, we have community, we have communion. Yet, even this little taste of isolation, this little taste of separation is horrible, isn't it? We hate it. It's not the way life is supposed to be. can't be totally alone. But he was. He was all alone. When the shepherd was struck, the sheep were scattered. He was all alone in this world. He was all alone in the universe. The sun that he created refused to shine on him. And in that moment of infinite loneliness. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus didn't have to do that. Jesus didn't have to be there. He chose to do it. He chose to be there because he loves you. This is what it cost for the gospel to have meaning. This is what it cost for the Holy Supper to have significance. That the blood of Jesus was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. How could it be? How could it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died He for me? who caused his pain for me, who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Yes, beloved. He did it because he loves you. He did it for you. Amen.